This is Cover 2, a podcast on the Cleveland Browns. Hit! Browns are going to win! Mayfield, end zone, Landry, touchdown! With Dan Kadar and Browns beat writer Nate Ulrich of the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. With Steve Dorshuk from the Canton Repository. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a really special show for you in store. We have Brent Scrotenboer of USA Today. He's an investigative reporter for USAT. He has been covering the Deshaun Watson case uh, really closely. You know, while, while Nate and and everybody else who covers the Browns kind of does it from more of a NFL perspective or a Browns perspective. Brent is really in the weeds, in the court system, and he has a great level of knowledge when it comes to this case and and what it's all about and what it could mean. So our podcast today, Nate is going to be talking with Brent through the case. So if you have any kind of issues with where things are at with Deshaun Watson and the investigation and where things stand in the court system and ultimately what the NFL could do, then this really is the podcast for you. So stick around for that. Before we get to that, don't forget we are brought to you by USA Today Sports Plus. It's a new look at sports from our friends over at USA Today. Download their app on the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. So make sure to check out USA Today Sports Plus. We also have a lot of coverage over at BeaconJournal.com slash sports slash Browns. Rookie minicamp uh, took place. So Nate and, and Marla Ridenauer have some thoughts on that. Um, there's a, a few interesting things on Deshaun Watson. A really good story on David Bell uh, and, and a few other things. So check it out. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Nate is at by Nate Ulrich. I'm by Dan Kadar. And oh yeah, we're back in the Apple store now. So if any of you kind of shifted off of Apple to something else to listen to us, you can head back over to Apple now because it's finally fixed. What a what a saga that has been. So without further ado, here is Nate and Brent. Brent, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, Brent, why I wanted to have you on is, you know, when the Browns traded for Deshaun Watson on March 18th, a new fan base, uh, you know, basically inherited this legal situation and became, you know, very uh, obsessed with everything that's going on with Deshaun Watson. Browns fans want to know the details. They want to know the availability of Deshaun Watson. It's all tied to his legal situation. You're an expert on the subject matter. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So I wanted to kind of reset everything with you and hopefully, you know, some of our listeners learn something today. So just to kind of get started, I want to give us a foundation here and kind of, um, you know, go back through some of the facts. So through the judicial system, Watson has been accused of sexual misconduct during massage appointments by 24 women. Okay. So out of those 24, uh, 
you know, criminal complaints were filed on behalf of 10 of them. And in March, two grand juries combined to decline to indict Watson. So there are nine counts in in Harrison County and one count in Brazoria County in Texas. And, you know, when the, the, the first nine counts in Harrison County, when that grand jury declined to indict him on those, that kicked off the sweepstakes for NFL teams to trade for Watson. And the Browns obviously prevailed uh, over the Carolina Panthers, Atlanta Falcons, and New Orleans Saints in those sweepstakes. And then that other count in Brazoria County after the trade, uh, you know, was also, uh, you know, a decline to indict outcome uh, by that grand jury. So now where we stand, uh, you know, eight of those 10 women who had criminal complaints, they're among the 22 women who are suing Watson. Uh, those are active civil lawsuits. They are unresolved. Of those 22 women who are suing, um, two of those cases allege sexual assault. Now, Watson says that he does not intend to settle these cases because he's denied all wrongdoing and he wants to clear his name. Um, he said that, you know, uh, before he joined the Browns, but he uh, made it a very strong and a repeated stance during his March 25th introductory news conference at Brown's headquarters in Berea. So that's where we stand. Um, so, so Brent, I've read the 22 lawsuits. Uh, you're on here because you know way more about them. Uh, the average ba- Browns fan, you know, from what I see on Twitter, they haven't read the lawsuits and I don't blame them. You know, it's not their job like it is ours. But kind of give them a a crash course. I I want you to kind of outline what Watson has actually been accused of. And I think it's an important question because, you know, there's screenshots of your stories on on Twitter. Uh, The Browns fans are passing around and and they've come up with an interpretation that, you know, 20 of the women suing Watson are claiming civil assault. And they're telling each other that that means that physical contact was not alleged by those 20 women. So can you clarify what was actually alleged in that context? Yeah, so physical contact definitely was alleged. Um, All these cases are different. It's important to note that, but they generally make very similar allegations. They mostly say he contacted them for a massage on social media, such as Instagram. And then during the massage sessions, he exposed himself and touch them inappropriately or causes genitals to touch them. That is against the law. Uh, sometimes the allegations are worse or more graphic. Um, in three cases, the women allege he coerced or attempted to coerce oral sex. The alleged conduct um, happened in four different states, but mostly in the Houston area. And all this is alleged to have happened from early 2020 to March 2021. And, you know, of course, it's important to note as well, he's denied wrongdoing. His attorney says the women are lying, says they're out for money. He also says that sometimes there were consensual encounters. But uh, overall, um, the, the, the allegations are very similar with what they allege. There are differences with each one, but that is basically the general picture that has been painted by these lawsuits. Yeah, and I, I went through the civil lawsuits again um, this morning, um, you know, because I read them shortly after the trade in their entirety, and I counted three of the 22. Only three of the 22 did not actually allege physical contact. When you read the details, you know, three of them were about 
exposing himself and asking the women to do uh, different things to them that they weren't comfortable doing. But, you know, all but three of them, like you said, Brent, there's definitely uh, accusations of physical contact. Now, I've read a court filing from Watson's attorney, Rusty Harden, and I'm sure you're aware of it, discrediting many of the women. And there are several people who have mentioned to me and conversations about this and how they're feeling about Deshaun Watson uh, coming to Northeast Ohio playing for the Browns. They, they pointed at Tony Busby and, you know, there's obviously some conspiracy theories or theories or ideas about Tony Busby. Um, depending on how you view it, I guess you would use a different, um, uh, adjective, uh, about the theories, but basically it, it goes along the lines of Busby lived very close to Texans owner, Bob McNair, the late owner. His son is the current chair and CEO, um, Cal McNair, and that basically these lawsuits are part of the Texans setting up Watson, who had requested a trade in January 2021, and, you know, this is the team, you know, getting back at him, so to speak. And I've talked to Busby about some of this and, you know, conversation I had just kind of as an introduction and, and kind of get in the background on a lot of the cases and how this all came to be. You've obviously... um Talk to both sides uh, many times, Brent. Um, you know the 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 um, plaintiffs' uh, legal team and Deshaun Watson's legal team. So, what do you what do you make of all this? What do you think people should know about Watson's defense? Some of the key points, and then the Busby McNair theories. Yeah, as far as the Busby McNair theory, it's always been interesting to me, and I've I've heard that since this all started back in March 2021. You know, Tony Busby, of course, is the attorney for all the 22 women that are suing Deshaun Watson. And I guess he lived or lived next door to the down the street from the McNair house, and that generated some kind of conspiracy theory that they were working in tandem in some way after Deshaun Watson had uh, requested a trade from the Houston Texans. Now, that's it's always been silly to me because it really makes no sense. You know, if you think about it, you know, this Deshaun Watson requested a trade before the lawsuits came out. The Texans were paying Watson a lot of money. They had a lot invested in him. They considered him perhaps their most valuable asset on the team. Why would the owner of the Texans, quote unquote, set him up and sabotage his trade value? It would be like it'd be kind of like, you know, intentionally wrecking your car before you traded it in or put it on the market. I mean, and then then look what happened afterward. I mean, Watson became toxic in the trade market. Nobody wanted him. The, the Houston's, the Houston Texans paid him not to play. It was a lost season for the Texans and for Watson last, last year. So conversely, if none of these lawsuits happened, Watson would have played last year for somebody. I'm almost certain. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't he have? I mean, even if, you know, it was for somebody else, I mean, the, the Texans would have unloaded him and try to get something in return. And the trade market didn't happen, didn't heat up for Watson again, as you notice, like the sweepstakes opened after the first grand jury said there were going to be no criminal charges against him. You know, that was not guaranteed to happen. It took a year to happen, and only then did his market value shoot back up. So, the whole notion of a conspiracy theory between McNair and Tony Busby, the plaintiff's attorney, just it just it defies logic. <laughs> so unless I'm totally missing something outrageous, uh, that, that's what I've always thought about it since I first heard it over a year ago. Yeah. Another thing that I think about when I think about this is the timeline. And, um, 
Jenny Vrentis, who's covered this uh, closely also, um, who worked at the beginning of it for Sports Illustrated and now works with the New York Times, through her reporting showed, uh, you know, text messages that she was able to corroborate um, from, uh, you know, one of the women who made allegations, and they date back to December 2020. So that was before the trade request had been made public. So it's not like the... Uh, allegations were, you know, in a in a timeline that would make sense to be a reaction to the trade request. The trade request, uh, again, made public in late January 2021. Uh, and through that reporting, it has been shown that, you know, allegations were made behind the scenes, although the first lawsuit wasn't filed until mid-March 2021. But that first allegation, uh, you know, was actually made and, and proved to be made uh, in December of 2020. So I find that interesting, too, as a kind of way to view some of the theories and some of the things that you, that, that you hear from um, fans and, and not not just fans, but, you know, people in the in the league, from what I've experienced, is kind of trying to discredit, um, you know, Tony Busby by, you know, kind of building um, different theories. But just kind of circle back. What are the key points, um, you know, that people should know about Watson's defense. Obviously, he's denied wrongdoing, like you said, Brent. Um, and, and Rusty Harden has essentially said, you know, this is a money grab. But what are some of their strongest arguments, in your opinion? Well, I, I think they they point out in a lot of it, they point back at Busby that, you know, he's essentially produced a, what they consider to be like an assembly line of lawsuits. So, you know, a lot of the lawsuits are, similar and there's similar phrasing in them and you know to somebody from rusty harden's point of view who who is deshaun watson's attorney um you know he can argue well they're just they've created a factory of lawsuits for this case and and he described it as you said as a money grab that once the first couple came out all these other women thought they could cash in now i don't know how likely that is that 22 different women in four different states all decided to come up with the same story in, in essence and, and lie about it. You know, I don't know how likely it is. It's not impossible, but, you know, it, it would, that's a lot of lying going on, you know, in, in, in a court. And I think that's a pretty serious allegation to make. There, there are some cases, um, too, where, you know, they, they note that there were communications with these, with these women after these ele- these alleged incidents and so rusty harden will argue that well if this if what happened really happened why would this woman re- respond to his texts so many times afterward why would they have like why would they meet each other again after this bad thing happened and you know that that is you know a, a point that a good defense attorney will raise and the explanation for that it depends on the case, but that there was one case I, I wrote about, I don't know, a week or two ago where the one of the women um, several times responded to Deshaun Watson's text messages after this alleged encounter where this bad thing happened to her. Well, the, the plaintiff's attorney's explanation for that is that, well, she was scared and only responded to him. She didn't initiate contact and she was afraid. And that if she didn't respond that she wanted to act like everything was cool, because if she didn't act like everything was cool, he was worried that he would retaliate to her because she, he 
um, you know, is a prominent figure, a uh, very rich, uh, wealthy person who, you know, has the advantage of power in these relationships that he's had with each of these women individually. So uh, there are other times where they, these women met, you know, a time or two, some of them after these alleged encounters, and they say the same thing. Well, why did why did these women continue to have contact with Watson after this bad thing happened to them? And that's that has been their reason is like they're afraid of what he might do. Um, you know, this these women, a lot of them are single moms. They're not rich people. They're not famous people. They're they're just working small businesses, and along comes Deshaun Watson, and they don't want to, you know. Make it. They don't want to upset him or give him a reason to retaliate against them in any way. So that, that that's the plaintiff's point of view. But the defense side of that too is like it doesn't exactly look good to the layperson maybe who doesn't understand some of these dynamics that these women would have any contact with him ever again after these incidents occurred. But there is there is an explanation for that from the plaintiff's side. Gotcha. So. One thing I wanted to address with you is, you know, like I said in the introduction, um, you know, two grand juries in Texas declined, uh, you know, to charge Watson. So or to indict Watson on, on those 10 criminal complaints. So the Browns owner, Jimmy Haslam, has repeatedly mentioned this as something that everybody needs to remember. Um, he's really hanging his hat on this, and I want to read a, a quote from him. It was, um, you know, at the NFL owners' meetings in Florida in late March. I was there with a few other beat writers, and this is what Jimmy Haslam said uh, about this topic. He said, quote, there is due process here in the U.S., and so far there's been uh, 10 different times it's been brought up, and I don't know how much you know about grand juries, it's not a real high bar to indict, okay? And 10 times as Sean has received a no bill, that probably ought to be acknowledged a little bit, right? I mean, it is. So I think you just need to let the process run its course, and we're comfortable that that'll lead us to a good position, and I think the league will feel the same way, end quote. And I think it's significant because, you know, Haslam and the other NFL owners obviously – put a lot of stock into the decisions of those two grand juries. Well, actually, it was the one grand jury because the second one happened after the trade and the sweepstakes and all that. But, um, you know, they put a lot of stock into the decision of, of the grand jury in uh, Harrison County that declined to indict him on the nine counts. In uh, my understanding, uh, why there wasn't great concern uh, about the Brazoria County um complaint is that that one if even if he had been indicted on that would not have been a felony it would have been a, a misdemeanor so the nfl teams saw the nine counts uh dismissed and that was their signal to go all in and they met with watson we had the the rolling out of the red carpet the, the recruiting and the, the the meetings that you know these teams were using to try to lure him uh, and the browns obviously ended up on top after he initially told them he wasn't coming here and, and they gave him a five-year uh, $230 million fully guaranteed contract to, to secure it, to, to seal that deal. So all of this is a way of saying those are big deals uh, in, in, you know, the, the grand jury decisions in the eyes of the NFL and certainly the Browns ownership. So what were the biggest factors that led to those outcomes? 
and, and, and just kind of what do you think it's important for fans to know about those outcomes, Brent? Yeah, it, it is true. What the Browns owner said is true that it's not a high bar to indict in a criminal grand jury proceeding. They only need to show probable cause or a reasonable basis that a crime was committed in a proceeding for a grand jury. The, the grand juries in these cases did not find it met that standard. However, uh, let's look at the bigger picture here. There's, you got to kind of like see the bigger picture and where this would have gone if they did decide there was probable cause. You know, first of all, it's also important to keep in mind that th- that does not mean these allegations did not happen. Uh, just because a grand jury declines to indict doesn't mean what the women are saying are not true. These are he said. She said cases. It's basically his word against theirs. There is no video. There is, if there is any DNA evidence, then he could, you know, explain it away by saying it was consent, consensual sex, which his attorney has suggested has happened in some of these cases. Now, the prosecutor in a grand jury proceeding has a lot of sway over the grand jury. There is no defense rebuttal in those proceedings. The prosecutor can be as aggressive as he or she wants to be in a grand jury and presenting the evidence to that grand jury. So it could be the prosecutor looked at these cases with a bigger picture in mind and realized it would be very hard to bring these cases to trial and win because the standard at trial for conviction is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a very high bar to clear uh, after a grand jury indict. So if Watson, let's say Watson had been indicted by a grand jury, then those cases, what happened next is those cases go on track for trial and have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, a much higher standard of proof. And keep in mind, these are he said, she said cases with no other hard evidence. No prosecutor wants to bring a losing case. So I, I talked to a Houston law professor a number of weeks ago who told me that it's possible the prosecutor didn't present these cases aggressively enough to win an indictment simply for the reason that the prosecutor, excuse me, the prosecutor would prefer they didn't win an indictment. And the reason a prosecutor wouldn't want to win an indictment in this case is maybe because he or she believed they'd lose at trial simply because there's not enough hard evidence. You know, in this case, the Harris County Grand Jury, you know, which considered nine criminal complaints against Watson, um, decided within a day not to indict him. That indicates to me that not a lot of evidence was presented for each each case. So. It's just important to keep in mind that these proceedings are very secret, too. We don't know the evidence that was presented. We don't know how hard the the prosecutor tried to get him indicted. There's an old saying that a prosecutor in a grand jury uh, proceeding can indict a ham sandwich if they wanted to because they have such control over the, the situation. They can really make, you know, a defendant look bad and 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 lead the grand jury to indict somebody. You know, con- conversely, it's, it's true, too, that the prosecutor thinks the case is weak. He can kind of he or she can kind of, you know, sway the outcome so that there is no indictment from the grand jury. And then they don't have to go to trial with a case the prosecutor might think is going to lose. So that those are the theories about it. But it's important to keep in mind that you know, we don't know what happened. We don't know what evidence was in those proceedings. Grand jury proceedings are very secretive. So we're kind of left to speculate. But that those are some of the theories about the standards of proof and why, you know, what happened happened. OK. And, you know, I had in mind to ask you, um, you know, just to explain the difference between the criminal and civil cases. And you kind of touched on that. But um, also just 
to kind of get everybody up to speed on the civil process. Um, how many depositions has Watson done so far and, and when are the next, you know, when are the others scheduled? Um, and just what, what's the update, updated timeline for, for trials to begin? I, I know that's kind of the conversation surrounding that has kind of shifted lately. So what's the latest on all that? Yeah, I understand Watson has done nine depositions so far to this past Friday, almost a week ago. And I think there are six more coming in June that are scheduled. And then that would leave um, seven more to be scheduled, the last I heard. So there's still a way to go on this. The discovery deadline, meaning the, dis- the deadline for gathering pretrial evidence in this case, has been moved back to July 1. Um, so he could maybe wrap up the rest of his depositions before July. But the judge in Houston, who's been overseeing this case, has, you know, been you know, pretty open to working with each side's schedules and, and shifting deadlines if necessary. So um, this this discovery could last another couple months. Um, as far as when a trial could happen, uh, as we've reported, there was an agreement recently in the last couple months, I think, where they decided each side agreed that there would be no trial started between August 1 of this year and March 1 of next year. That was... Um, that was made, a deal was made to avoid having any of this interfere with Watson's football season. So, but, but, and I should note, you know, Tony Busby, the plaintiff's attorney, um, has expressed interest in getting one or two of these cases tried this summer as early as July. But there was a court hearing recently where Rusty Harden, Deshaun Watson's attorney, really through cold water on that possibility there's so much to be decided in terms of how these cases will be tried what evidence is allowed in them and what's not and that would come right after discovery concludes and that's a lot to get in by july or august so it's looking like if these trials happen and they're not settled the earliest they would happen would be march 2 2023 Okay, and one other thing that I was wondering about uh, in connection to the civil cases and, and, you know, I guess the potential for for even more on the criminal side is something Tony Busby said in March. And it, it was said to ESPN and maybe other places, too, and he may have told you this, Brent, along the way. But in, he, in my conversation with him, um, he had mentioned this uh, in, in it's basically, um, you know, he's saying that there are additional women who want to file lawsuits. And uh, he thought that more criminal complaints could surface, uh, leading to, you know, more grand juries to convene. I haven't heard much about that lately. Have you or have those possibilities fizzled? Where do you think, um, you know, the potential for for more lawsuits or even more criminal complaints stands now? You know, it's possible, but I would be surprised if more came out. You know, there, there, certainly, there are more women other than the 22 plaintiffs who have made similar allegations, as, as you've noted. I mean, one, one woman sued and then withdrew her suit, apparently, because she did not want to be named. You know, there's the two women who filed criminal complaints that, but did not sue him. Busby has suggested there are others. 
uh, who, you know, just didn't want to come forward to deal with, you know, possibly being the victim or of harassment and retaliation. But the more time goes by, the harder it would seem to bring a case from 2020 or early 2021, unless Watson has continued with this alleged conduct, which I don't think he has. Uh, we, I think we would have heard about it if he did, but you know, that's not to say it's impossible. But I, I just think the the farther along these cases go, or the more time goes by, that the less likely it is. But uh, you know, I've been surprised before on these kinds of cases, so it's not impossible. I just think that you know, time is of the essence with with criminal complaints and civil complaints. Okay, and before we kind of move on to looking at the potential NFL discipline, I did have one more thing pop into my head throughout this conversation, um, and that's of the depositions Watson has taken so far, uh, what do you think is the most significant development or uh, you know information uh, that has come to light, and just how much of that is secretive as well? Um, you know, you were mentioning how – Nobody really knows all of the ins and outs, uh, except for the people, you know, directly involved of the, you know, grand juries uh, convening. But um, are we dealing with a similar situation with depositions where, you know, there is a lot that we don't know, but some that we do and some through your reporting. So um, what do you think about the significant development so far in the depositions? Yeah, you're right. There is a lot we don't know. I mean, those aren't public proceedings. Uh, when somebody sits for a deposition, it's typically in a in a law office. In the case of Deshaun Watson, um, I understand they've been happening in the office of his attorney, Rusty Harden. Uh, I understand that's where they were on Friday. Um, so what what does come out uh, is only a portion of what is actually hours and hours of testimony. Keep that in mind. Uh, there is no protective order in this case, so. It, it is possible, and as we've seen, each side is, has different ways of selectively leaking uh, material um, that they learn in discovery, either through the open court or just telling a reporter. And I, what is the most significant that we've learned so far? Um, I, I think it's a story I, I reported on, uh, the other day uh, that came out from his deposition on Monday, or excuse me, on Friday, just this past Friday. Uh, Ashley Solis, who has come out publicly as a plaintiff, he was the, she was the first plaintiff to come out publicly and to sue Watson. Uh, and that was in March 2021. She, her deposition of Deshaun Watson happened this past Friday. And her lawsuit claimed a year ago that, and this is in her lawsuit, if you, you can read it, it was, it's been there for over a year, that he touched her inappropriately with his genitals and it freaked her out. She was shocked um, and scared and she it led her to cry. And then she said he texted her after that to apologize. And his attorneys last year posted a screenshot that they said was Watson um, apologizing to her. Well, why would he apologize for something if he didn't do what she said, well, he does. He was asked about that in, in her deposition of him on Friday. And I got some of the partial transcript. And he, in fact, admits that she cried at the end of the massage session and that he apologized to her 
well, he does deny wrong. We don't know what else was said in that deposition. I, I, I'm going to assume that he denied he, he did anything inappropriate, as he has all along. But why, why would a, a woman be crying at the end of a massage session, and why would he feel the need to apologize? I mean, I guess there could be all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, I don't think she was chopping onions after the massage session and got teary-eyed, as, as how, how he described it. He didn't. But, you know, that that's just one thing that, like, you know, you just – it raises questions. Um, again, he's denied anything inappropriate, but I mean that 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 is that does seem incriminating. You know, keeping in mind that keeping in mind that you know there's a lot in the depositions that we haven't heard because they're just hours and hours of them, and some of them just go on with a lot of you know boring you know fact fact checking and stuff like that. But I thought that was a significant. Uh, development in the depositions that we know about. Brett, you said right there that it raises questions, and I think that that's probably something that the NFL investigators are are definitely going to ask Watson, and you know, among many other things. But you know, those meetings did start with Watson and NFL, NFL officials this week in Houston. As the league, uh, you know, looks into whether he violated his personal conduct policy. Now we know how this policy works. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know this, but just to reiterate, um, you know, the NFL does not care uh, necessarily if a player uh, is charged. Uh, it has a history of sus- suspending players um, for violations of the personal conduct policy without a criminal charge. So. The fact that Watson was not indicted by those two grand juries does not mean he is off the hook with the personal conduct policy. And that's why this investigation by the league is ongoing. Now, the way the new personal conduct policy works, new with a with a newer CBA, um, there is a jointly appointed disciplinary officer by the NFL and the NFL Players Association who would decide if Watson violated the policy and if so, what discipline would be. And that's Sue Robinson, um, former U S district judge. And now the policy also states that NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell or his designee, he could designate somebody to handle this responsibility, but Goodell or his designee would handle, would handle an appeal. Now, because Watson has denied all wrongdoing repeatedly, I'm operating under the assumption that he would definitely appeal. I think that that's kind of a foregone conclusion. So uh, I, I'm kind of coming up right now with four options, unless I'm missing something. Uh, there are four options in my mind about how this could go as it relates to the personal conduct policy. Uh, one is Watson could be suspended in 2022. He appeals and the outcome is is basically the the end of his league discipline. Um, two, it's uh, the second option. Uh, Sue Robinson would stay in a holding pattern until there's full legal resolution, uh, meaning waiting and seeing how you know the civil lawsuits go. Uh, but the NFL is not required to do that. The NFL can make its own ruling whenever. But if she were to stay in that holding pattern. Um, because of what you said earlier about the timeline and, and the case is not likely to go to trial until March 2nd, 2023, the earliest and Watson being adamant that he doesn't want to settle the cases that would point to 
you know, a ruling being essentially on hold until 2023. The third option is Watson avoids a suspension. And the fourth option, which I think is the most likely option, and it's a it's a guess, it's it's looking at everything, trying to figure out the big picture and just, you know, what seems the most logical to me. So it's not inside information, but an opinion. Um, that fourth option is Watson would be suspended this year. He appeals. He gets a specific number of games after the appeal. But the NFL also makes it clear in its announcement and its statement uh, that further discipline could be doled out depending on how the civil cases shake out. So um, Brent, having heard all that and, and knowing the ins and outs, uh, do you think one of those options is more likely than the others? I've, I've let the cat out of the bag, which one I would think makes the most sense. I'm wondering whether you agree or you're seeing it a different way. You know, I think that's a pretty good logical guess. Um, but I, I w- and I'm glad that you mentioned the disciplinary officer um, in this in this process. Yeah, that's a new element that makes it harder for predi- to predict how this will go down and to predict the timeline of what would happen. It, you know, it used to be that Roger Goodell was the jury judge and executioner in player conduct investigations. The, the players' union hated that because he would basically look at the evidence, decide the penalty, and then if he wanted to appeal, the appeal would go back to him, which doesn't seem very fair. Now, they've changed it in the new collective bargaining agreement, and as you mentioned, Sue Robinson, a former federal judge, now is the jury, in effect, and Goodell, Roger Goodell is the appeals judge. So Sue Robinson will make the initial finding, but she could request more information or even call for a hearing. So how long is that going to take? You know, I mean, we don't know. We Or is the NFL's case strong enough that she will be persuaded to take swift and strong action? We don't know how strong the NFL's case is or what they've come up with in their investigation. It, does the NFL feel it has enough on Watson to refer the case to her now? Or does it want to refer it to her maybe when these civil cases, these civil cases are played out more? Um, the fact that they were meeting with Watson this week, the NFL was meeting with him this week, it would seem to indicate they're toward the end of their investigation. But, you know, with with what some is what is coming out in the, the civil lawsuits and the discovery process. I don't think the NFL wants to, like, make a decision or refer its case to Sue Robinson and then find out later there was some like incriminating evidence that they missed that is going to come out later in a trial or the discovery process like like this week for example the you know the, the what came out of the deposition that we reported that that watson admitted the woman cried at the end of the massage and that he apologized to her um i'm sure they are aware of that allegation because it's in her lawsuit from last year but to have watson admit that that part happened uh, i mean he could have disputed it and said i never saw her cry he, he didn't. He admitted she cried. Well, why was she crying? He said he didn't know. So, you know, that's a new development that happened Friday. <laughs> you know, and so, like, does the NFL want to, um, does the NFL want to, like, you know, risk having things come out later that it want, that would have, that it would have wanted to know before it referred its case to the disciplinary officer? So, at the same time, the NFL risks, you know, going into the season with acting like everything's okay 
And and believing that Watson, if if the NFL believes Watson did something wrong here and and that he should be suspended, does it want to put him on the field um, as this two hundred thirty million dollar quarterback and act like nothing is wrong here? So it's a tough situation for the league to be in from a PR standpoint and from like a due due process standpoint. So it's really hard to predict, but I like your prediction that they might. Parse out some discipline now with a caveat. We we can suspend him more if more comes out that we didn't know about. But I don't I don't know if they want to do that. It would it would make them it almost would make them appear like you know they they're not sure of themselves or something like that. But it, that's a good guess. That's a good point, Brent. I I'm gonna kind of give you a little background on because everybody you know they want to know about the suspension. They want to know, the Browns certainly want to know, the fans want to know, because it was all tied to his availability as a football player. But the other thing is they want to know how long the suspension will be. And that's, that's an interesting question because the initial suspension, if he receives one, obviously can be changed by Goodell on the appeal. But basically the background I want to share with you is just that I left NFL owners meetings thinking the Browns were optimistic that he wouldn't miss like a full season or even most of a season. And it kind of goes back to that Jimmy Haslam quote that I read earlier. He even said the team was comfortable. It would end up in a good position uh, by, you know, letting this process play out and the league would feel the same way. That was Haslam's, that was a paraphrase of that quote and the league to feel the same way. I, I read as a kind of a hopeful outlook that, you know, they wouldn't throw the book at Deshaun Watson, um, you know, when it came to the personal conduct policy. But since then, uh, you know, this was late March, the owners meetings, when I got this feeling and this sense. Um, you know, gosh, if I had to put a number, I think I've told Dan on this podcast, you know, eight games, six games was just kind of the guess, the feeling I came away uh, with, you know, about a, a, a suspension fr- from the owners meetings. But. The big development in, in this in this pro sports world since then is is baseball punish punishing uh, Trevor Bauer. Um, and when I I look at your uh, section on USA Today of your stories, Brent, it's filled with stories about Deshaun Watson and Trevor Bauer. I mean that as far as I can tell, that's pretty much been your life for a while now. Um, and I'm just wondering, as somebody who's covered both of these situations so thoroughly, do you think that Bauer's punishment from baseball, you know, could affect how the NFL views the Watson situation and could ultimately influence how it approaches making this ruling? I mean, the Browns have said, you know, that they're comfortable with Watson. Uh, that's why they did this trade. But I'm just wondering if you think that maybe they're squirming a little bit more behind closed doors with the way baseball is handling Trevor Bauer's case. Yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. And, and you're right. The, I have covered a lot of the Trevor Bauer case too. And the cases, the, the comparison between Trevor Bauer and Deshaun Watson, there's a lot of similarities. But they're also very different. And, I think you you made a good point in that will the NFL feel pressure after Trevor Bauer got this unprecedented two season long suspension uh, that they they also must crack down even harder 
than they maybe would have on Deshaun Watson. They're they're going to say that they, it has no bearing. The NFL is going to say the baseball has no bearing on on the on the Deshaun Watson case, and it, it shouldn't. But at the same time, we've seen before where it had what happened in one sport has influenced the other. You might remember the Ray Rice um, domestic violence case. He was initially suspended two games in a domestic violence case, and then the video came out, the the, the graphic video where he hit his then fiance and knocked her unconscious in the elevator. That video comes out after he was suspended two games that caused a massive public crisis for the NFL. They had to revamp their domestic violence policy. They, they gave him a longer suspension and then Ray Rice never played again. And then, and then the news media and others start to ask questions about other sports. And I'm, I even did a story about this at the time at baseball at the time, the Ray Rice stuff, didn't have a domestic violence policy. There was even a case I covered where a player was caught on video that seems to show him hitting his girlfriend and knocking her down in a bar in, in, in Arizona. And he even was convicted for what happened in that incident. The, the player's name was Brian Giles. He used to play for the um, Pittsburgh Pirates and the San Diego Padres. And he was even convicted and he did some, he didn't go to jail or anything. He did some kind of um, no contest plea with uh, some, some kind of probation and he wasn't suspended by baseball. This happened before the Ray Rice era. Nothing happened to him in baseball. No, nobody really even knew about it for, for years. But since the Ray Rice incident, uh, baseball had copied in effect the NFL and came up with its own domestic violence policy where players now have been suspended. Now, Trevor Bauer is one of them. He's suspended for 324 games under what's called the domestic violence and sexual assault policy. So that that is an example of, of pressure and things that happen in one sport affecting the other. And it's, it's, you know, I think a good question to ask, well, does Bauer suspension Way on the NFL and deciding what to what to suspend Watson for. I don't think so. It shouldn't. I mean, it should it should rest on the merits of the case and the precedents in these cases. But I mean, let's be real that you know there there's PR considerations to take into account and 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 there is there is pressure, even though they won't admit it, to act like they're looking tough in a, in a situation. But it's it's important to remember. You know, and it's important to remember in both cases, Bauer and and Deshaun Watson, there, there's a lot we don't know. I, th- I think with Trevor Bauer's case, we all knew about this case with a, a woman in California who had two encounters with Bauer at his home in Pasadena. That case played out very publicly in court. I covered it. It was like a four day hearing. We knew all about what happened there. It was very murky allegations. Um, you know, he said it was consensual. You know, she said it went too far. The judge sided with Trevor Bauer. Well, a lot of us, when we first saw the Trevor Bauer suspension of two seasons, we're kind of shocked. It was like, just because it didn't seem to, it seemed like too long of a suspension for what we knew about the California case. But you got to remember, there's these other cases in Ohio that have been reported by the Washington Post, and there there might be others too. We don't know all that the NFL knows, we don't know all that Major League Baseball knows. So it's just something to keep in mind um, in this. But I think that's a good question that you asked. 
I, I have one, one more thing pop up, Brent. Um, I want to touch on with you, um, because you're talking about precedent and I know that matters when it comes to, you know, the legal, uh, cases and, and many instances and, you know, punishment by leagues and professional sports. I, can you think of anything, uh, that compares with Deshaun Watson? And I, I, I just think it's an unprecedented situation, but, but correct me if, if I'm wrong. And, and the reason why I say that is just the number of allegations. Um, you know, I, I, I know that people have looked at Ben Roethlisberger, um, kind of as, you know, a way to, uh, figure out the, you know, potential ramifications. Um, but do you think that part of what makes this so complicated is it, is it, 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 it is unprecedented? Um, or do you think that that's maybe overstating it? No, I think you're right. I mean, the, the NFL has never investigated a case like this in that usually when we hear about um, a case where the NFL is considering discipline against a player, it involves maybe one, usually one, maybe one or two or three incidents, but usually one. Here we have 22 plus, you know, the 22 civil cases and these other cases that, you know, didn't didn't decide to file a lawsuit. Any one of those could lead to discipline. Any one of them, any any particular incident could lead to discipline for Deshaun Watson. Um, also, all 22 could. <laughs> so, but certainly there are, there there are cases among the 22 that are stronger than others, and some might not have cooperated as much as others. So yeah, I, I do think the Ben Roethlisberger case is a good um, thing to bring up. You know, he was not arrested or charged just like Sean Watson was not arrested or charged. And there was a civil case involved with that that involved, you know, kind of like inappropriate exposure and, and things of that nature. Uh, but that was just like, if I'm off the top of my head, I think it was like one or two alleged incidents or one or two alleged women. And this is 22. So I, I think it's totally fair to say that, this investigation is unprecedented. And so they're, they are in uncharted waters as far as trying to determine what a penalty should be. Right. And, you know, that's exactly why we wanted to have you on Brent, because um, there are so many layers to it and the number of, uh, you know, cases, um, you know, it's, it's just something we haven't seen before. Um, so I'm glad that, uh you know, the way I was viewing that kind of from the right perspective, because I, I just to my knowledge, um, you know, the NFL hasn't really seen anything like this. So I really appreciate uh, your time um, and your knowledge. And I hope that, you know, our listeners, Browns fans can learn a lot because, you know, I get it. Like, it's hard to, to dive into all this stuff. Um, you know, that's what we're here for. And, you know, there's nobody better that to uh to really talk up through all of it than you so uh thanks so much for your time and uh once again um you know it's uh it's been a great resource for us to uh have you on here and to have your coverage uh as part of the usa today network thank you appreciate it enjoyed it thank you very much thanks brent thank you